Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk and happy Easter, everyone. We're so glad that you have joined us in this Easter season. My name is Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. So we wanted to start a brand new series for this Easter season. Um, A while back, a colleague of ours, Pastor Jeff Steveber, interviewed Steve here. And one of the questions that he asked Steve on his podcast, Anytime is Good, was to ask a little bit about Steve's whole story. And as I was watching the interview, it made me aware that I don't think I really have ever heard either of your cult stories. Like, what brought you into ministry? Like, were you like all gung-ho right from the tender age of five? Did it take a while for you to accept this call into ministry? You know, what was it? So I thought that would be really interesting to hear, like, how we got to the place that we are right now, and especially in ministry. So, Steve, do you want to share a little bit about your vocation and what brought you into ministry? Sure, sure. And uh, as as a, a preview of coming attractions, our plan is that each of us is going to get to take a turn in telling stories like this, each in a separate episode, and we'll get to, by the end of this series, explore how those call stories maybe morph or grow or change from fresh out of seminary or just being ordained into actual lived life. So um, and I, I appreciate the way you frame this, that like people who, who go into pastoral ministry at some point learned that it's almost like a genre, the call story, that almost kind of <laughs> like the prophets in the Bible. And maybe sometimes we sort of cast ourselves in those terms like, yeah, well, I'm like, you know, Isaiah, who heard the here am I send me call, that kind of thing. And others are more um, gradual. Um, my own way I tell the story or the way I recall it is is kind of a two part, I think. Um, I would say when I was in um junior high school, seventh, eighth grade, kind of, it's in that time of life when in our tradition, in the Lutheran tradition, I was going through confirmation and catechism classes. And so for probably the first time in my life, really intentionally and consciously, there was thought about like, how do we respond back to God? How do we say yes back to the God who's already said yes to us in our baptism and the cross uh, in, in God's love and Jesus? Um, and so that, that whole that whole confirmation experience is sort of leading toward when you're confirmed, you're saying yes back to God. I want to be a part of this way of life. I want to give my life back to Jesus, that kind of thing. Um, and as much as you know, my seventh grade mind could understand it, okay, that I was beginning to think in terms of, yeah, God's God's calling each of us in some way to do something. And I think alongside of that, I began to think maybe what I'm being called to is work in the church. And part of that was I grew up in uh, church life. I grew up, um, my mom was uh, part-time employed by the church we went to for at least a lot of my childhood. She was the director of Christian education. So that was like the Sunday school superintendent kind of thing, as well as managing Bible school and other ministries, kids clubs, things like that. And so uh, it's not just that I was there a lot, but I also got to be at the church building 
at odd, weird times and see like behind the scenes stuff. Like I got to see church staff meetings and, you know, hang out before meetings started and be there when my mom would be working in her office, you know, and, and that meant not only I got to see what church was like without the vestments and the organ music, but also um, it was always this place that was comfortable, that felt sort of like this was an okay, safe place to be. So like, it was never like the church is so holy, you can't be comfortable there, but more like this was always a place of welcome for me. Um, even though it was just, you know, empty and it was the custodian and a pastor and a secretary in an office or something like that. So it, that, that, that was a piece of it for me. Um, and so it was probably around my seventh or eighth grade year that when people started asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I started answering, I, you know, I think I'm called into ministry. Um, and, and a part of me kind of remembers, um, it was, it was funny, our church growing up, in, um, in Holy Week, we had the tradition not of having a special liturgy or service called an Easter vigil, but they had a special, they called it a prayer vigil where people could sign up for blocks of time at the church to pray about whatever was on their mind or on their heart between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And I remember one year, probably seventh or eighth grade, I picked a slot and I asked my parents, can I stay late and can you guys hang out in the lobby while I take a slot of time to go pray? And I don't really know what I was doing other than just, this is a thing they're offering. Sure, I'll, I'll try this. You know, somebody trying to take seriously what it meant to live out my faith. And um, I... Remember, like, looking back at that moment, like, there's no, like, voices from heaven, no visions or anything like that. Nothing like in the prophets, you know, biblical call stories of seraphs, you know, flying to the church or anything like that. No, no incense filling the room or anything. Um, but there is something about that experience that felt very much like I was going out of my way, out of my usual routine in an attempt to connect with God, to listen for God. And, and coming back out of that, I sort of point back to, man, after that moment, something began to click in me differently that I started looking at. Maybe I'm called into ministry and started leaving behind my earlier childhood uh, aspirations. I, there had been a point when I thought I wanted to be an architect and a part when I, you know, every kid wants to be an astronaut for five minutes, at least um, all those other things. And I think I began to think maybe, maybe I'm called into ministry. and. Um, at that point, of course, even for a kid who'd spent a lot of time in a church building watching meetings, I still only had a pretty narrow sense of like what pastors do. Um, and so I thought, sure, I could do the things that I see pastors doing. But as as time went forward from there, um, I started asking pastors around me, like, you know, OK, if, if I'm interested in this, what what's the process look like? So they gave me direction like, well, you know, seminary is a part of that uh, puzzle piece. And uh, before that, in our tradition, you go to a four year undergraduate to get uh, a bachelor's degree in something. At least that's the, the, the way many people uh, go into to ordain ministry in our in our tradition. So, uh, OK, what things are helpful to study in seminary and in college, that kind of thing. And um, so I went through high school and then into college thinking that was probably the track I thought I was headed toward. And so I had the chance in undergraduate to study not just uh, theology and Christian history and things like that, but I got to take Greek in, um, in undergraduate. And then I felt like that put me in a good place to get more out of my seminary experience because I'd had some of those things were already... I didn't have to, to start the learning curve quite so sharply, you know, um, and alongside that, I had the chance both in college and then in seminary to get increasingly involved in different aspects of pastoral ministry. So even in college, it was like getting to have 
the, the to learn the role of what we sometimes call the assisting minister role, someone who helps with the liturgy, leading the prayers, helping serve at communion. Those are things I hadn't had the chance to do before. Um, and then, of course, in seminary, our, our model uh, is really, really attentive to uh, teaching parish kind of experience. So through seminary, each of those points allowed me the chance to experience, okay, not just here's what it's like to be in on Sunday mornings, but here's what it's like to manage, you know, being in a council meeting and here's all those. And, and at each point, it kind of felt like, not like, oh, I'm good at this, but yes, this seems important. I can see the value of it. I want to get good at it. So I guess like that, it was, it was, there was a beginning point that I can say, boy, after this moment, I started answering I, the, what do you want to be when you grow up question with, I think I'm called the ministry. Um, but then it became, I guess I would say clearer as, as I got the chance to do those different parts of it. Not always easy, but it felt sort of like, yes, this is, this is something that, that the more I find out about it, yes, this is something I, I want to be a part of or feel like I'm being drawn to, I guess. So when did you get to preach your first sermon then? Like, did you get a chance to do that in high school or did you have to wait until a seminary? We had the uh, tradition in the church I grew up in of having a youth Sunday every year. And on youth Sunday, our high school youth all took different parts in the liturgy. And I grew up in a church, I'm trying to remember, we didn't have communion every Sunday. It, at some points it was like once a month and at some points it was every other week or something like that. Um, so either we had done like the, the high school youth had done all the parts of the service one Sunday, or we did everything but the communion liturgy. Um, but so it was a chance for me, I, I can remember at least one year getting to be the one who gave a sermon in high school. And you know, if I had to look back at it again, I, I'm sure it was terrible. Um, but, and I think that's, that's part of the beauty of a congregation that's willing to take risks like that, that sometimes it's not about what that one sermon said or didn't say, but more about how do we create the opportunities for young people, one, to be involved and to, you know, cut their teeth to learn that kind of thing and to get some of that experience. So that's something that I uh, really appreciate my home congregation growing up, making that kind of space for youth when I was the teenager. And I imagine for others in, in years after I went off to, to uh, college and seminary and beyond. And then I think in, um, in when, once I was ordained, uh, well, even in seminary, I had the chance to do like a couple of sermons in like that you're teaching parish setting, just like many, many have that kind of experience. I don't think I had the chance to do that in college per se, um, but I was involved in the opportunities I had for public speaking when I was in college. I was, I was, I'm so nerdy. I was on the speech and debate team um, and I didn't even do the cool stuff like debating. I did other prepared speeches uh, and other events like impromptu speaking and extemporaneous speaking. So um, I had a lot of experience to get better at or get more comfortable with public speaking that wasn't scripturally centered, you know, but was, was still uh, to get more experience with, with public speaking. Yeah, because public speaking is definitely such a huge part of what we do. And I know for a lot of people, like that's a big deterrent about going into ministry. It's like, uh, no, I don't think I could do that because I can't talk in front of large groups of people. But it also seems like so much of our process of like training pastors is giving those opportunities to practice speaking in public yeah. um, until you are comfortable with it. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, nobody, 
right off the bat in middle school or high school, or even as an adult is necessarily comfortable doing it. It has to be a taught thing, an experienced thing. Yeah. I would say, honestly, um, and maybe it was because I had those kind of experiences in college. The thing that petrified me the most, and still I feel like is a huge unknown for me, even in ministry these days is not the, the chance where I have to prepare something to say in advance, but, um, the moments when I'm walking into a hospital room or especially into a situation where someone is near death or a hospital waiting room and our ministry is one of presence and there will be things that we say sometimes, but like there it's almost more how to learn when to just hush myself. I mean, well, I get, they don't need a sermon. They need someone to sit with them, but even managing the awkward silences too. Like, and one of the things I'm most grateful for, but I hated going through was uh, in, in our seminary tradition, it was a requirement to have a unit of what they call clinical pastoral education, CPE. And for me, I was on uh, like a CPE staff at a, a big hospital in Columbus, Ohio, near where I went to seminary and was with a whole class of other sort of basically people learning chaplaincy. Um, but part of that was making rounds and visiting people either just on the unit that I've been assigned to or in on-call circumstances when there was an emergency or someone who had requested a visit from a chaplain. And that meant kind of cold calling, people who you didn't know, people you didn't have any background with, and jumping into what's their story and doing as much information gathering as you could do without interrogating. Like that. That's a difficult art. Um, and to me, it feels like so much harder and intimidating for me than preaching a sermon where I feel like preachers have home court advantage in preaching and that like we get to pick our text even if you're a lectionary preacher who's handed it like you get to select from things and you know well in advance here's what you have to work with you can if you want write out every word you're going to say or if you don't use notes be the kind of person who knows exactly what you want to say where you're going to say it and it's a monologue but to jump into a situation where you don't know what's expected I think that's one of those places for me that as I got into that part of our, our uh, educational process, I felt the least equipped and least prepared and least good at, but like doing it felt like, no, this is what, this is a, a huge part of what genuine authentic ministry has to look like because it can't just be, I can only show up when I have a prepared thing to say, and there's no time for rebuttals, you know, like you need to be able to walk into the room where death is there. You need to be able to walk into the room where there are not going to be any words that fix this. Your job is just to be the presence of love and of God's uh, presence with them. Uh, and, and so like, I'm not good at that. I'm still not good at that, but um, I'm convinced like Woody Allen says, 85% of life is just showing up. I, I'm good with the showing up part, but I will tell folks even to this day that I am not a public speaker. And everybody's like, but, but you're a pastor. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm not a public speaker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there, for me, there's something different about preaching or, you know, speaking in a hospital room than there is like, you know, what you did in college, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, this is one of the things I think is lovely about the chance to share one another's call stories uh, is like, and, and for, for people who, who've spent any time with the biblical call stories, especially stories like Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah, like there's almost this rhythm of God calls the person and the person then lists off a list of reasons of why they shouldn't be called. You know, so Moses is like, I'm me no good talk. 
Uh, and, you know, Isaiah, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. And mm-hmm. God even like preempts Jeremiah's like, don't you say I'm only a boy. Um, like, so like that's part of the regular rhythm of a true call story starts with a protest, a pious protest of, oh, I'm not worthy. And then God, you know, says, well, I've got a plan for that. Um, and I guess I think there's something lovely as, as we get to tell our stories of, of owning it and opening. And that, that's not even something to apologize for, for any of us, I think, or for anybody else as they look at how God calls them. But to say there's something lovely about saying a call story isn't about I'm awesome and more about like, I have strengths and weaknesses. I am mediocre, but God is able to take even our ordinariness or the things that we don't think we're good at and um, do something good with them. To, to me, that's that's like, uh, you know, what Paul talks about in Second Corinthians about we have this treasure in jars of clay so that it may be seen that uh, this extraordinary power doesn't come from us, but comes from God. Like those moments where I feel like I've failed the most. Uh, and then somebody says, boy, that was really helpful or that sermon is really good or thanks for being there. Those are the times when I go, well, clearly this isn't about me. Um, and I'm more worried about the times when I feel like I did great um, because I'm much more nervous about like, how much of that is just me and my ego or me saying the things I wanted to say rather than what needed to be said or not said in this moment. Yeah. I think you should just own those moments though too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel like so much of my life has been teaching me to make myself feel small. Mm. And Mm -hmm. occasionally I need to just acknowledge that. Oh, heck yeah. I knocked that out of the (laughs) park. Yeah. Like it's not every Sunday, but like once in a blue moon, it's like, ah, yeah, that was a good <laughs> sermon. And like I think that's okay. Like yeah. there that there was there was this moment that I feel like the that God worked through me and I said something powerful. Yeah. And it, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with owning that. Like no. I appreciate, I appreciate that clarification. Cause I guess I think for me, it's just the recognition that sometimes I may feel like, man, that thing I said was great and get no response from anybody else one way or the other. And I can't gauge my, how well or effective I was based on what the personal feedback from others is. And on the other hand, there are times when the, the, the response from people is they, they thought something was great that I did not think went well. Um, and so I guess for me, it's just that reminder of like, Sometimes you will say exactly the right words and you will not know that you made a difference. Sometimes you will. And not only will I feel it when I say it, but somebody else. Uh, there, honestly, for me, the, the times are before I get to preach a sermon, like on Sunday mornings early, I'll usually get to uh, the, the church where the first services. And because I don't preach with notes, usually um, I will like have to like give a version of the sermon to an empty room, like making sure I know walking through the the points, the ideas, even down to the sentence level, if there's things I want to make sure are burned into my brain the right way. And there'll be times when I'm like, okay, this is ready to preach. I'm ready for this to happen. I'm looking forward to this and this and this. And then there'll be other times where I'm like, I don't know if I can hold this all together this morning. I, you know, what was up late last night or there was a kid sick in the middle of the night or it was daylight savings time and I lost an hour. Um, and in those moments, like, it's, at some point, you got to fly something, <laughs> but you don't know um, how that's going to land, I guess. So, like, th- I, I, I hear very, very much what you're saying, Sarah, and I, I, I want to honor that piece of it. I just have to also remind myself, I guess, um, I may not know walking away from an experience if it was as helpful as I think it was or the opposite. The times I think I may have failed, maybe the time someone comes back months later and goes, that thing you said, and I won't even remember it, uh, you know, that, that stuck with me. 
Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of preaching that's just relying on the Holy Spirit, right? Relying yeah. on the Holy Spirit to give you ideas, uh, relying on the Holy Spirit to give you the right words to express that idea, but as well as relying on the Holy Spirit to let those words land on people's ears the way that you intend them to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember once preaching a sermon on internship. And I don't remember what it was about, but afterwards I was like at the, you know, the back of the church, shaking people's hands as they left. And, um, somebody came up to me and said, I really liked your sermon. I really liked what you said about X, Y, and Z. And I was like, I said, ABC. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how you took that for my sermon because it's the exact opposite of what I was trying to say. And I remember just being a little baby intern going, oh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Oh, yeah. mm." Yep. And like that, it's that reality that like I have to keep in the back of my head. We used to have this practice when I was just brand new in this call um, of every couple of months, we'd have these little forms we'd put out in the bulletins and give to a sampling of people to get feedback on the sermon. And the idea was, it was like this short little, you know, four or five questions and, you know, boiled down to, you know, if you had to put in a sentence, what was the bad news you heard in the sermon? What was the good news you heard in this sermon? How well did this sermon connect with your life? How well did this sermon feel like it, you know, connected with the text? Um, And then, you know, anything else you want to say. And it was fascinating and terrifying sometimes to read the, like when, when what somebody thought they heard in the sermon did not match with what I thought I said. Um, and it's, regardless of whether they liked it or didn't like it, like if, if they, if they said, I love that sermon about how you can earn God's love, like, whoa, that, that's not the sermon I thought I was saying, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so like that, and that reminder that the, the, the work of a preacher is, to adapt when you're not making those connections, you know, like there's, there's some degree to which any of us can't be responsible for how somebody hears or mishears what we say. But if we have evidence or data that there's something that says that there's a disconnect in what I think I'm saying what other people are hearing. Yeah. Preachers have to take on a responsibility. What am I going to do about that? So I don't make that mistake in the future or can amend it or clarify where it needs to be. And yeah, that, that I guess keeps me always on my toes, I think. I'm remembering when I was on internship, uh, uh, it was a, a Lenten series that was so mid, uh, like a midweek service. And um, the the pastor was supposed to preach, my, my supervisor was supposed to preach for this you know, Wednesday midweek service. And he was just on the verge of getting a terrible flu. And it was too late to change plans or anything like that. But like it had been a terrible day for him. And he literally, when it's time to get up to the sermon, he just gets up and says, I got nothing. And it was like a sermon that was literally about like how there are those points when we are absolutely empty and feel like failures and that God still holds us in those moments and that that's what grace is about. It's, it's, it's not the God only loves us when we're all put together. But in my memory, that was like the most powerful sermon I can remember him preaching in that year. And it was exactly because the context was, I, I don't, I got nothing. Um, and you can't go to that well every week. You can't say, hey, once again, nothing to say. So, you know, but but um, there's there's something there that very clearly to me said that uh, a sermon or or the experience of hearing and delivering uh, preaching isn't just about prepared words on a page, but the spirit is very much at work in the in the act of the event of speaking and hearing itself, mm-hmm. even when the preacher thinks they got nothing and when the congregation is befuddled that this is not what they were expecting to have happen 
Yeah. So looking back at what you did as a young person to prepare yourself for ministry, like, you know, being on the speech and debate team, taking communication classes in college, is there anything that you wish that you had done to prepare yourself for ministry, like classes or subjects that you could have done more in or anything like that? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. And I, maybe, maybe, um, maybe I would say, I often find myself regretting things that we didn't have time for in seminary. And then I think to myself, if all the things I wish they had taught us would have been taught in seminary for an adequate amount of time, seminary would have been 20 years long. Um, you know, like, honestly, like there are times when I feel like, boy, I wish there'd been a class in, or I wish it had more experience in, but like to have attended all those things. Well, I would still be in my graduate studies right now, I guess in particular, some of that is like what kind of ministry you feel like you're called to it it depends on what kinds of things you think you are um, wanting to do. Like um, I know very, very little about community organizing and uh, there are people who have that skill to mobilize, not just their congregation, but a community to do ministries of outreach or to help, you know, develop clothing ministries or, you know, after school basketball programs and things like that. And so much of that is context does where you're serving need that kind of a thing. There are places where I feel like I'm grateful. Other people have that kind of experience, but I don't. Um, there are times when I feel like, um, I, I could have done with a lot more learning about, um, how Lutherans do Lutheran liturgy, uh, because I feel like I'm woefully behind the curve on a lot of those things too, and just end up like Indiana Jones making it up as I go along, even have, having been in this, uh, uh, calling for, for a decade and a half. Um, and I guess I think, um, I feel like any experience we get to get outside of our tradition, whether it's other Christian traditions or other faith traditions or other ethnicities, uh, is helpful because it lets us, it lets us want to have our, our horizons expanded, but also have a better sense of how to connect with people who are different and see things differently from the way we do. And there was some of that in our seminary experience. There was not a lot of that for me in my undergraduate experience. And um, that means that there's sometimes when I recognize I'll be doing something and assuming everybody's on the same wavelength when they aren't because they come from different, either different traditions or um, different backgrounds. And even, even to be a meaningful presence in a uh, culture, in a society that is increasingly multicultural, um, I think requires the ability to be conversant in, you know, different ethnic backgrounds and religious traditions and languages and cultures. And that's something that I feel there certainly could have been more of in my education or that's something I have to do my utmost to try and be attentive to now, even if it feels like I'm behind the curve. I guess those things come to mind. Matt, I think a lot of that, your, your, your phrase of if we looked at all of the things that we wish we had looked at in seminary or, you know, that we would still be there 20 years later, um, you know, I think that's also why we have such a focus on continuing education. Sure. Right? Like that there's, it's not like it's ever too late to go back and to revisit those subjects or to learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as pastors, we are asked to be lifelong learners. Yeah. Because there's always more that we can learn. Sure. Sure. And I am grateful too. I think, I think, Although I enjoyed the classroom setting and I think I, I, a parallel universe me could have spent a lifetime in academia and writing papers or things like that. 
there came to me for me quickly a sense of parish ministry is different and that means that some of the learning is different and is done Mm -hmm. in the midst of doing it you know um that it's a different kind of a skill um that in some ways is for me more like there's been some things I've had to teach myself with like uh, basic woodworking and tool operation and that like are not teachable in a classroom or watching a YouTube video, but you kind of have to learn, Oh, this is how you do this. Or, Oh, this is how you make a a mitre joint or whatever. Um, That like, I feel are helpful for my approach to doing ministry too. We're like, okay, I've got to do, I've got to learn how to get better at this. I will have to do it in order to get better at it. Um, And that means you have to be around people who are willing to bear with that kind of learning. Um, but also that is, it's again, something that doesn't require me necessarily to uproot and go to a different institution of learning and stop doing what I'm doing. I can do that simultaneously. And that, that's a, a help and a, a comfort for me, I guess, too. Yeah. I didn't realize going through seminary, how much I would have to learn on the job. Yeah. Cause yeah. it just can't, like you said, it can't be taught in the classroom. Um, so you just have to kind of do it and struggle your way through it and, and learn from that. Yeah. I think too, one of the dangers of a, of a question, like what else should you learn? At least when you're right out of seminary is that we can't see coming down the road, what challenges we're going to need or what skills we're mm-hmm. going to need. Like, uh, I feel like, yeah, did seminary prepare me for adapting ministry to have an online video component of it because in case there's a worldwide pandemic? No, no, it did not. Um, and uh, even the way the internet and social media have changed from when I was in seminary until now, that I don't fault anybody for saying, how come you didn't predict the rise of YouTube and then the rise of the pandemic? But there's a lot of things that because of the things like the pandemic or the way social media changes or the way people connect with church, man, we've had to learn on the fly, sometimes really fast, come up with a plan and sometimes a little more slowly along the way. And so that it's, it's not even just in the standard topics of theology or Bible or pastoral care and counseling or family systems or things, but it's also things that I can't even imagine yet. So I, I, I dare not even guess what skills will turn out to be useful 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road. Some of them, though, will probably be things I haven't even imagined because they don't exist yet. And then some will be ancient, you know, basic fundamental things like how to relate to people, how to be present in the midst of death, how to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So all those will be uh, part of the future, I guess. Something I know I, I've had to learn, and it's, this goes along with that on-the-job training, is there just certain things that not only do you have to just learn on the job, but you can't learn it until you've been in ministry for so many years. Yeah. yeah. Right? There's just certain things that come with experience mm-hmm. that you just, you literally just need the experience. Yeah. 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 And I am close friends with so many older colleagues who've been doing this for twice, three times as long as I have. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why aren't I, why am I not like this person or this person? I'm like, and I have to keep reminding myself, Erica, you've been doing this for seven years. Yeah. 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 They've been think- doing it for 30. Like there's a difference of just doing it for that long. Some of that is is getting used to the rhythms of ministry. And I think also a piece of it is how we get to know the people we are serving with, too. Mm-hmm. Like there are things that I couldn't say when I was just starting out in congregations because I didn't know the people. Um that now, like when you know people, you know how things will hit differently, you know, experiences, yep. you mm-hmm. know, that kind of thing. And um, I think that that's that's a factor in it, too, that, again, it's an experience thing, but it's about the particulars of where you are and the people uh, where you're at. Not that human beings in different contexts are radically different, but sometimes, yeah, you need to learn the rhythms or the particularities or the history of a place or the history of the people. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I remember hearing somebody say in seminary uh, something like, 
anytime you're you are in a new call for you know six months you're still preaching to your old congregation because you're still thinking you know you, those are the people who are the, the referent and it takes you a while to learn the new dynamics the new people that kind of thing and you know whatever the unit of time is there's there's got to be some truth to that of we're we're our brains take a while to rewire to learn the people that we are we are with. So I think a big piece of ministry is knowing your context to the and like know know thy audience, know the people you're listening to, and how what you say and the way you say it hit their ears. Which kind of gets back to that: what's the difference between what I thought I said and what does somebody mm-hmm. else actually hear? So I guess I'll say thanks for listening to that's that's my story as as boring or whatever nerdy as it was. Um, I do hope, though, for folks who are listeners, that you will get uh, ready to join us for more exciting stories uh, in the coming weeks as we get to hear call stories from everybody else here and more adventures looking at what call looks like for each of our lives here on Crazy Faith Talk. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everybody else. Bye. Bye.